following message is from the 2022 Leader Summit in Louisville, Kentucky. For more information on Harbor Network, please visit www.harbornetwork.com. All right, I am so honored to be with uh, Harbor. I, if I say Sojourn Network by accident, just give me grace because uh, I'm getting old. I can't remember details like that. But um, I'm, again, I'm just honored to be part of this with all of you. Um, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. There might be, I'm an emotional guy in general, but there might be some tears that come out through this. Part of that, again, I'm emotional. Um, I, I know there's some narratives out there that real men don't cry and uh, decline of Western civilizations because we have so many wussy men now who cry all the time. And um, I, I'm here to say I don't think that's true. Plus, I could take them down. I mean, that's so unchristian. That's so unchristian to say. Take, edit that out. That's that's terrible. Who who let me up here? But um, now, I mean, there's going to be some emotions here. Part of it is, um, as, as Pastor Ronnie was alluding to, uh, my wife and I, we've just been through, uh, just like a lot of us here probably, just the uh, past few years have been really difficult in different ways. Part of that is uh, my younger brother, Joe, was actually uh, in December of 2019 diagnosed with a very severe form of leukemia, a rare one. And then... Um, the very next month, actually, our younger daughter, Tabitha, was, uh, her liver started to fail. And we had, you know, it's some really good things where we, we saw through a hard, hard time. We, we believe she was healed, but then a few months after that, we discovered that she also had leukemia. So, yeah, it's, it's been, and, you know, we thank God because right now, both Joe and Tabitha, they seem to be uh, on the good end. Uh, my brother's was much more severe, but he even, he had transplant, and he seems to be doing well, and Tabitha's doing well, so we're thankful. Um, but I guess what we're learning is just because uh, you hit certain milestones doesn't mean some of the emotions don't still stick with you. Uh, and grief, loss, um, and on top of that, you know, all of us going through things with COVID and pandemic, my wife, she leads in our, uh, in our state health department. She was right in the middle of leading through all of that in the midst of everything that was going on with our family, um, different issues with church as well. So it's just been a heavy time. Um, but I, I say all that, not for just your pity, but the pity's okay though, if you wanna, if that helps you to listen more. Um, <laughs> but say, I'm so thankful for this network. Um, you know, some of you, um, your newer friends to me, but others here uh, being able to see you, it's... You know, we, um, and not in a bad way, but we, we made a move out of Harbor Network a few years ago just with more directions with me, with different ministry things, but it was um, always deep affection. And I always had a deep affection for this network, but uh, when, when, especially when our daughter got sick, um, I think I was blown away by a larger outpouring of love and support. But um, from a network like this, so many of the people I know with uh, Harbor reaching out, uh, letting know they were praying, they were thinking of, and I think we can be really honest here, right? Um, the ministry world we, we walk in can be pretty cutthroat. It's so transactional at times where if you're not part of something, it's like we never knew you. And man, um, Harbor's not like that. Uh, this is like real family. Um, so much love that uh, my family and I received, even if we weren't formally part. So uh, for us to just be here this week, it's, it feels like homecoming. It feels like family reunion. So just really honored to be together. Um, so it, it, it's been hard for all of us, I'm sure. And, uh, I try not to name drop because it just feels so lame, but I, I, I like Ronnie Martin introduced me before my message. Like, you know, things, things, I try not to do that too much because it, you know, we don't like people to do that. But, um, I was in a meeting with Ed Stetzer recently, early today, and it matters because Ed's like one of those guys who knows stuff, right? If you, if you know Ed Stetzer and he was leading us through some conversations on how do we do ministry? How do we respond post pandemic? And his, 
big point was there really is not a post-pandemic. We're, we're kind of still feeling the ramifications of those things, and I'm sure many of you are. And he used this term, as he was describing the past few years, of cultural convulsions. I thought that was so appropriate to describe the time that we're in right now with all of the collision of all of the different factors, whether pandemic, political, race, justice, uh, gender, all of these things together. He has not seen a period in U.S. history like this since the 60s from his studies. So one thing I pulled out of that was if things have felt extraordinarily hard, well, it's because it's been extraordinarily hard. It's like, it's like if, if it's felt like the past few years, like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. This is so hard. I, no one taught me how to do this in seminary. There are no books. Like, people are writing books as this is happening. This is how you deal with it. And it's coming out within, like, two days. Because there, there's nothing. No one knows how to do this. And we don't need to minimize that it's been hard. Because so often we like, well, just suck it up, stop whining. It's not like it's like medieval times when people try and chop off your head and they got to stop. What's wrong with you? It's, it's been hard. It's been really hard. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And just even for you to feel the freedom, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve relationships that have been changed, churches that have been affected, your family that's gotten a hit. It's okay to grieve those things. But as hard as it's been, and, and if we have ears to hear, I believe the Spirit is also breathing a fresh wind among us. We have to believe that, and I think that's why this value of imagination, I love how we're talking about that here, it's so important because we're following God as a prophetic voice into a broken world. And we need to ask the Spirit to give us renewed eyes to lead into spaces that feel dark and murky. So can I just ask you before I, I go into anything, can I just invite you to do that right now? Whatever it looks like for you, if you need to close your eyes, if you need, if you need to take a position, whatever it looks like, just for a moment, can you say, Spirit, give me eyes to see, because right now it just all feels cloudy, that I could have courage and conviction and imagination. So just join me for a quick 10 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to whatever you want me to see. Help us, Lord. Um, you've given us so much, but Lord, we are prone to see what we don't have. Give us eyes to be able to see what you have blessed us with, including family like this. We also ask that you would give us clarity of eyes and conviction to be able to follow you into places that seem really scary, that seem beyond our pay grade, our abilities. Help us, Lord, and let us know the one who goes before us and that we can have courage even when we lack strength, that we know the one who is strong, who leads us. So help us right now, Holy Spirit, guide us. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So we need renewed eyes, and I think it definitely applies to the topic I was asked to speak on today, embracing unity through diversity. And I, I think we can just be really straight. Um, if I'm giving a talk like this even a few short years ago, I think it's really different. Because I think at that time, it was more, how do we do diversity? I mean, that's the question I would be always asked from different churches. How do you make diversity happen? Or how, how do you, or we're talk, probably talking more about the worship gathering, the service. How do we help to, like, we can't even clap all in the same way. Like, how, how do we do the, is there like a manual for how we do these things? Um, but I think we can be honest that at this time right now, it's, it's like different conversations. And depending on the context, it may be a little bit different with a, with a group like this at Harbor, where I, I hope you feel like this is a safe space. But in a lot of contexts, diversity is not the most popular initiative to get into for a variety of reasons. For some, um, it's, it's, you know, I think I can speak as a person of color in evangelical spaces. Sometimes you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay without that. <laughs> I'm okay with like an all Asian church or being around people who get me. Like I, I'm like, I don't know if I trust everyone in some of these conversations. Like I think there's some trust that's been broken. Some, some people that you thought, oh, I thought I knew who you were and all of this has revealed, oh, 
We talk a lot about family, but man, I'm not sure what that means anymore. And, and just for me, in, in the place I'm at, in, in walking through with a lot of uh, white, I think a polite term is Anglo. I'll just say white. I don't mean that in a bad pejorative way. It's like, but like a lot of uh, wonderful white leaders I know are just like tired. Like, I don't know how to do this. I've been really trying. I'm, I'm, the, I'm not like flaving, uh, like waving whitey flag and like, you know, white lives matter. I'm not that. I'm actually trying to be really open to these things. But I feel like I don't, I, like everyone hates me right now. Like, I don't think I, there's no good way to do this. So I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that there's a realistic urge that probably some of us feel to just kind of let it go. It's like, do we really even need a main talk? I mean, make it one of those like small breakouts on the side for people who really feel convicted about that. But for the rest of us, can we just get back to ministry? I mean, I, I, I'm sure some of our white brothers and sisters, you feel that. I mean, you can't say it out loud because you're canceled, but you probably feel that. You're like, <laughs> like man, can't we just get back to like, and I'm not just, well, it's all about the gospel. So I mean, I believe it's actually part of the gospel. Can we just get back to how we do gospel? instead of all this other stuff, because I just, maybe we're not supposed to do it. And again, I don't want to speak for all people of color because we're not a monolith, but I know from a lot of, lot of people of color, black, indigenous, and other, other communities represented, it's kind of tired too. It's like, I'll be here, but let, let me do my own thing. Um, there's, there's one thing though, even if that's, that's, that feels real, I mean, it's kind of a big thing. The Lord has still called us to the ministry of reconciliation. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> I mean, we're harbor here, right? Ultimately, we don't do things just because they're culturally popular or because some Christian leadership magazine has written about this is the church growth model for the future, so y'all better get on board. I mean, we obey the Lord and that's enough. And that, that's why we do it. That's why we even take space to engage in really hard conversations. That probably makes some of us really uncomfortable. But, but for me, at least there's more to it. For me, it's, I also increasingly see this journey of reconciliation as a key means of being continually formed in Christ's image. Um, maybe I would express it this way, that the journey of experiencing unity and diversity isn't just a goal to achieve. And, and why I say that is sometimes, in my observation, sometimes it feels like this is where we want to get to. This is where we need to get our church to. So show me the six keys to how do we get there. So give me the seminar how we can create diversity. And, and, and again, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But again, the journey of experiencing unity, unity and diversity, it's not just a goal to achieve, but it's a means of our transformation. Um, that as much as the Lord values what we do and where we're going, it's just as important for God, I think, from what I read, in the kind of people that we're becoming. He's not just um, satisfied in, are we able to produce something and build something? He wants to know, who are you becoming? And I would suggest that the path of unity found in diversity among the people of God can play a very vital role in our spiritual formation in our Christ-likeness. And man, in, in my own journey and, and study, I've been exploring how the Lord uses this journey of reconciliation as part of our formation. But I got just one message here, right? So I'm just gonna touch on one specific focus. And I'm gonna say this might take some imagination for some of us here, I'm just preparing you. But one way that God shapes us in the reconciling journey of unity and diversity is through suffering and loss. Yeah, you're like, oh no, this is one of those kind of messages. <laughs> yeah, buckle up, right? It's, it's one of the means that God shapes us as we seek to be a unified people through our diversity is through suffering and loss. And we observed this in the early church in the book of Acts, starting in chapter six. And, you know, we've seen thousands like revival coming to follow Christ, apostles just preaching a sermon and boom, like, thousands of people. It's great. Uh, they have a little bit of problem with the um, just uh, acts of mercy needing to be and deacons being installed. But we have this very hopeful verse in chapter six, verse seven, where it says, the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And man, what a great time to be part of the church. 
It's like revival is happening. It's obvious to anyone there that God's at work. I mean, some of y'all church planners here, I know that you would be including this in your updates. You would be like, yo, who's our camera person? You, you getting pictures of this? This will make a great newsletter. Like we need to send out how God's on the move. And as part of that, you have leaders being raised up, incredible leaders, servant leaders like Stephen. And, you know, he, uh, he getting some beef with some of them, some of them, you know this. And it's like Twitter trolls, right? He's got Twitter trolls who are hammering on him and trying to like defame him. But he, they just too religious for their own good. So he just owns them, right? He takes them through like a, a redemptive history through all these different places. And, and he just owns them. But look what happens as a result. And this is just a warning. Don't get in Twitter fights. Because, but look what happens in chapter 7, verse 57 after that. They yelled at the top of their voices covered their ears and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. I mean, what, what we think should have happened is like, yo, man, we had such a great run, like thousands coming to faith, incredible, like deacons, mercy ministry was epic, and we had such a great run, but everything good comes to an end eventually, and this is how it ended. Man, footnote in history. I mean, really significant footnote, but footnote. But y'all know your Bibles. You know what actually happened. Verse four, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Woo! <laughs> what would seem to kill the mission just propelled it forward like no one could imagine. I mean, this is like Fast and Furious, Nitrous, boom, that style, right? Like just move that thing forward, like turbo. And, and, and here is the astounding thing as we, as we look at the larger book. The mission absolutely powers forward, but it's an intentionally and demonstratively reconciling mission intended to include people of all nations. It's a reconciling mission with diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural implications. And we see different examples. One example, one of these missionaries who are outwardly propelled, Philip, we read about him in chapter 8. Starting verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official, a Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. You're like, man, why can't I get people like that in my city? <laughs> Holy Spirit, but anyway. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And he goes on to describe and explain the scripture. And we hop to verse 34. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. And we read eventually this Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized. His life is transformed. And I just, I just love this story. I mean, I love any story that describes transformation. It's, it's beautiful. But man, I, I also love this because of the impact it had on redemptive history. And just a, a quick side note, I think sometimes, especially depending on the cities you're in perhaps or the people you're ministering among, sometimes there's, there's, um, there's challenges apologetically when it comes to Christianity perhaps being thought of as the white man's religion. Like Christianity is just used to subjugate in power. It, it's meant to take away who you are and your ethnic identity. And I, I think we have to be careful, even as we engage with people humbly, we have to also note that that betrays a fundamental ignorance of church history. Because in the history of the church, one of the greatest seeds of robust faith was in Northern Africa. Some of our most historically impactful theologians are Africans. Theologians like Tertullian and Cyril and Cyprian and Augustine. 
And, and we don't know this for certain. Some of you don't get mad saying, where did you find it? We don't know for certain, but church history suggests that this Ethiopian eunuch may have been the first Christian convert to go back to Africa and begin to spread the gospel. It's very possible that an entire continent and, and maybe even the course of Christ's greater church was changed because of one man's, this one disciple story. And how did it happen? A disciple was available to God's spirit, shared the good news with someone that the Lord had prepared ahead of time to receive it. Why? Persecution, suffering, hardship. Look at another example in Acts chapter 11. In verse 19, we read, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution, we can't lose sight. That's critical here. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And we go on to read about the growth of this church in Antioch. Because this great persecution that forced the people to scatter all over, sent some of them to places like Antioch, and they began sharing the good news of Jesus. But this is the beautiful part, not just to the expected target demographic. Not just your homogenous unit principle and those who are, are ready to be part of this. Like the spirit took them to places they might not have gone on their own. And if you read, we're not going to read it, but y'all know, again, y'all know your Bible. You're harboring that, right? Acts 13, I loved at the beginning description of that chapter where it lists some of the leaders. And we learned that Antioch was the first multi-ethnic, multicultural church and it would send out more missionaries with the same reconciling heart. And again, suffering was what ignited a movement beyond those who would have normally been a part of this culturally homogenous community in Jerusalem. Persecution helped to birth this cultural line-crossing mission and planted the seeds for a growing family that would be represented by the beautiful diversity of the mosaic of God's image bearers. And this was how the message of Jesus spread over and over and over again all through the earth. People followed Jesus. Churches of reconciliation were started all over the world, sending out more. And I know Pastor Ronnie digging on seminary, but seminary, one of the great things about church history, where you learn some stuff that I probably wouldn't read on my own. But we, we know that throughout much of the history of the church, the ministry of reconciliation has been accompanied by persecution. Because when you cross historic and sacred lines, people get mad, especially as it relates to religious belief. So suffering has often been the vehicle through which the message of God's reconciling kingdom has been carried throughout the world. I can't help but thinking about my own legacy. I'm, I'm a Korean-American, proud son of two Korean immigrants who came to this country. And I think about what's for me. I am a, and I think I used to run away from it for a while, but now I see so much of who I am is because of the Korean church. So thankful for that. And I think back, and you would think, I know Korean, it's weird with my kids because they're like, they, they don't know a world other than where being Korean is cool now. I'm like, yo, that's not how I grew up, right? <laughs> and we got like our fried chicken now. We got our phones. We got K-pop, BTS. We got Korean dramas. I know some of you watch on Netflix, right? And I, like we exporting all this amazing stuff throughout the world. That's like, it's a weird world for me to live in right now. But one of the things aside from those really cool stuff is we also export the gospel from Korea. And it might not be as well known to the larger world, but I think, I don't know the latest statistics, but Korea has uh, traditionally been one of the largest senders of missionaries to the world. But the history of the church in Korea is not that old. It's relatively new compared to the rest of the world. And one of the stories, again, um, legend has it that Christianity first came to the land of Korea 
1866, that there was this missionary, Welsh missionary named Robert Germain Thomas, who felt a deep passion to bring the gospel to this uh, Asian lands, but particularly this place of Korea. So Arambo came, came ashore, and legend has it that he was killed right on the spot. He was killed as he came to share the gospel. But someone saw one of the Bibles he had brought. And apparently, again, this is a legend. I don't know if this is a story of that, but legend says that they actually put up these pages of the scripture all over a house so that people would read. And people trace back the heritage of the Christian tradition in Korea to those moments where it caught like fire. And I mean, I, I think it's just, I, I can't help but see even me being here in this space where I'm speaking to a majority of non-Koreans representing Christ, it's like continuing that legacy forward more and more. But it's through suffering, through persecution, through the loss of life. And one of those famous African theologians, Tertullian, he said that famous quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I want to be really careful because as Christians, sometimes we weird about stuff. We kind of Gnostic in a strange way. Like we like, oh yes, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of church. We can suffer for Christ, but it doesn't really matter because we have an eternal home. And yo, it's like, we got like real family around the world right now who are suffering because of Jesus. And we can say that they have a home in heaven one day, and I believe that's absolutely true, but we should appropriately grieve, lament, do what we can to try to stand with those who are suffering because of their belief in Christ. So I, let's not be a strange people diminish real pain. But here's what I am saying. In the countercultural kingdom of God, suffering is not merely something to be endured, but it's actually a very means of demonstrating God's power of reconciliation. I mean, and that shouldn't shock any of us here because that's our savior's story. The suffering servant who brought forth life through his suffering death. It's essential to who we are. And, and I'm not trying to start a fight by saying this. And whenever you start a sentence like that, you know it's gonna be good. Right? <laughs> I think if we're being honest, we need to acknowledge that the suffering servant isn't often functionally reflected in the American church. At least the one that many of us see that's built on power and privilege and wealth. And, and stay with me. Don't start tweeting out angry things at me. Um, I'm not dismissing the real need for things like resources. We need that. It's really important. And I'm not promoting some version of like pietism that intentionally seeks out like a masochistic suffering as holy in and of itself. That's just weird. Like, that's not what I'm saying here. But, but I do think there's a subtle danger that we can begin to put our trust in our abundance and lose sight of where real power comes from for the Christian. And I just think this is especially true when it comes to the ministry of reconciliation and of even really good things like pursuing the unity and diversity that we desire. Because guys, diversity can't be manipulated with promises of resources and positions of leadership. <laughs> don't, don't tweet out angry stuff. Stay with me all the way to the end. Unity can't be manufactured with events and conferences. Reconciliation cannot be purchased with power, privilege, and platform. You know why I know? Because I think that's often been the way we've tried to do it. If we can just throw enough resources, throw enough money, give people enough, it'll happen. And I think we're seeing some of the fallout of that kind of approach. Again, and a lot of qualifiers there. Just to be clear, I think there's great value in learning how to lead healthy multi-ethnic ministry. I do. I think there are good practices that can be learned from those doing it. And even seeing their churches grow through a reconciliation focus, I think there's a lot of value there. I think there's wisdom in being trained in matters of justice, 
uh, cultural intelligence, cross-cultural principles. I think that's being a good missionary. All of that can be really helpful. And I, I mean, I'm even involved in that kind of training work. I, I think there's value there. I'm not saying we don't do that. But my point though, is if we're serious about the ministry of reconciliation and seeing a beautiful unity expressed in diversity, it will not come, I don't think, because of the abundance of our resources, but it will be in what we often feel lacking, what we feel we don't have the power that's unleashed when we have nothing else to left to trust in other than God. When all we can do is cry out in, in our helplessness and our feeling like idiots and like, I don't know what to do and say, God, if you don't intervene here, what are we gonna do? And I think this gotta be true for individuals, churches, denominations, and even networks that we wouldn't seek these things out of our abilities, but out of our very weakness even in suffering. And, and these are lessons I think God's been teaching me in very personal ways, even with some of our life journey. Um, yeah, I think it would be disingenuous to say I've learned everything from cancer journeys and all that. Uh, in some ways, I feel like I'm still there. My wife, we're probably still in that and we're still trying to process, but starting to see more. And I remember one of the early, earlier oncology visits with our daughter, um, at that time, it was just one parent because of COVID. I mean, that just threw a whole different thing on it, right? But I was doing what I do in, in new situations, and I'm just letting my senses observe my surroundings. I'm knowing that that was going to become the new normal for like two and a half years, so I better get used to it and know where I am. But in the midst of it, I really believe God was giving me eyes. Something else hit me. Um, I... I, was, I wanted to retreat into my personal sadness and just feel sorry for myself, but I believe God gave me eyes and ears to observe around me as I scanned that room. It's almost like a movie scene, something happened. Because I saw the father of a young patient trying to use the Translate app on his phone to communicate in Arabic with the nurse. And my heart just felt deeply for him because I was like, I, I know English and this is so overwhelming for me. I can't imagine trying to process this in a language you don't know. And God even gave me flashbacks to younger days in my own journey when I had to, you know, translate doc, uh, documents from my Korean immigrant father as a kid, when as a kid, I could understand it better than he could. I, I saw another space and I heard a young mother on the phone in Spanish. I, it's, I, I think she was giving up, I don't speak Spanish well, but it, it felt like she was giving updates to someone at home, again, because only one parent could be there. And, and as I got to know her a little bit and her one-year-old, I learned that she was a Salvadoran immigrant. And we shared each of our, using our phones, shared each of our versions of Romans 8.28 in an attempt to just encourage one another in this dark season in our family's lives. I, I saw another preteen patient and he was watching a show on his phone in what sounded like an Eastern European dialect. And it was really loud for a public place there. And that's usually one of my big pet peeves. But... <laughs> But you just give a lot of grace when you know these, what these kids are enduring, so I'm cool with it. And, and it was like a puzzle that started to make a little more sense, even as it was still kind of confusing as it came together. Because I saw Black, Latina, Asian, African, Middle Eastern, white, Orthodox Jew, Muslim, Christian, I'm sure, atheist, blue-collar, professional, materially wealthy, poor. Because as many different cultural differences were represented in that clinic, the common thing we all shared was knowing the soul-crushing experience of walking with your beloved child who has cancer. And, and I even remember thinking that you wouldn't be able to tell whose tears were whose if you collected it all. Because tears are cross-cultural. And as you know, as I reflected on that, you know, we live in a, and I think Ronnie alluded to this, we live in a weird time where it's, it's, it's like impossible to get the folk, folk to be on the same page about almost anything in life. It's like, I can say, I love your pink shirt. It's fuchsia! Like, it's like, okay. Like, agree to disagree. It's cool. Cool. I, I love you, right? <laughs> But man, suffering puts people on a level plane like not much else can. Because sometimes it's overwhelming how different we feel from one another. 
sometimes it feels like we've got nothing in common. Thing about it is, it doesn't matter what your culture is when you experience a cancer, when you experience the tragedy of a parent having to see their children go before them, when you see houses being wiped out by natural disasters, when you see relationships being destroyed, doesn't matter what your culture is, you understand the suffering and hurt and brokenness that comes with those kinds of things. And here is a crazy sounding statement that can only really make sense when knowing the extraordinary love that Jesus has for his own. Christ's power to build his diverse and unified church of reconciliation is often revealed in the fires of suffering. And, and I, I mentioned this in the beginning of the, of the talk that this journey of reconciliation, it's not just a destination, but it's a means for our formation. Because one of the best things that a diverse church can offer its members is this continual, consistent message that not everything is about you. And I, I know we all good reform folk here, I think. If you're not, you, you might have, it's cool. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I think that would actually be really cool. Anyway, um, but like we, we tend to dog on kind of consumer attractional churches. Like we make fun of them, right? You know, putting like an animal on stage or doing clown shows and oh man, just watering down the gospel and just trying to appeal to people's felt needs and lame, like not hitting them with the truth of the gospel and boom, like we... Yeah, we all do kind of the same thing. It just looks a little bit more theologically orthodox. We put out that we're gospel-centered. We're theologically acute. We hold scripture at a fire. And I, again, I, before you tweet out, I believe in all those things. That you're good. <laughs> but let's be honest. It's a way of telling people we're a place that you'll fit in really well. If you're already a Christian, you'd like us because we're like you. And in context like that, I think one of the best things we can do for people is to let them know, yeah, theologically, we want to be aligned. That's really important. That's good. Doctrine's good. But there's also a lot of stuff here you're not going to feel like you're fully in line with, but that's okay. Because that's going to help you remember the world doesn't revolve around you. You're actually far more important than you probably recognize because you're made in the image of God, but you're not what everything revolves around. <laughs> because there's all these other people too, and their needs are just as significant as yours. And being part of a community that's committed to things like reconciliation and diversity and the unity that comes from it, it's gotta be some of us, all of us in different ways have gotta feel not everything here is exactly the way I would do it if I were starting a church. But man, that's how Christ grows us, isn't it? That's how he learns what does it mean to follow him and not make ourselves the center of the universe. I remember a really weird example of this. Back when I was in Philadelphia, at had a great church. It was predominantly started as a Korean church, but it started to become more Pan-Asian. But we started to feel this conviction. Yo, we, we don't go to work with just Asian people. We don't just go to school with it. We've got to be a church that can reach our neighbors. And man, I want to invite my friends, but it's weird because we come in just like everyone's Asian. So how can we? And one of the biggest conversation points that became almost like a real issue of like contention was we used to have these amazing noodles in church. I, and yeah, it was, now it would be like a church growth strategy, right? Where, but back then it was still a little weird, right? But these amazing noodles that the first generation prepare and these little, and I think, I swear some people came to church late for that because the closer you were to the back, the first you got down to the fellowship hall to get it, put in a dollar, get these like noodles, that was great. And we asked the question, hey, there's just a little bit something we're sending out clues when we have noodles in our fellowship time. We can say, yeah, everyone's welcome, but yo, if you don't know how to use chopsticks, I don't got... And, and you would not imagine some of the backlash we got from some folks that said, you're not taking away my noodles. Why do I need to change it? I gotta change everywhere else in the world. This is my space. They were like angry. And we gently tried to, is that worth not dying over so that someone else might be able to experience the gospel? This is not, it's not even like tertiary, just noodles. 
But the simple idea that there are things that we need to learn will not be fully our way to be part of a unified, diverse church, but that's not the worst thing for who we're becoming. And that's, that's a sillier example, but I think it also begins to take on deeper, deeper implications of life when we get into our mutual areas of suffering. Because in my experience in ministry, most people, at least in the beginning, they come to church to find a way out of their problems, their burdens and suffering. They're trying to find a way so that they can let go of these things. But here's one thing about a diverse church. The broader the representation of different people groups, the wider the scope of everyone's burdens. Like the more different people representing different communities, it's just going to become bigger in terms of what kind of problems the church is walking with. Because you become exposed to things that you never would if your community looks more like you. So, for example, matters of injustice related to racism, for example, it just hits you different when it's your family. And for me, I, I still remember, I mean, I, I think I'm fairly fluent in terms of matters of, of racism, and all, but it really hit home when one of my closest friends, African-American pastor, was telling me, yeah, I've got to go home and I've got to have the talk with my son. Although, what, what's the talk? The talk is, if you happen to be pulled over by a law enforcement officer, what is the protocol that you need to make sure crystal clear you do? Hands on dashboard, no movement at all. Yes, sir. No, you need to make sure you don't give any reason something tragic could happen. And it was, it was eye-opening for me because I'm never going to have to have that talk with my kids. It's just a reality. But my heart broke because it wasn't just a news piece or an NPR article. It was my family who was saying that. If my family's saying that, it hits me. And here's where it requires great imagination because we have to trust that we grow in Christ-likeness as we begin to recognize the wider burdens that our growing family carries that the people around you help you grow by sharing the unique things that they are suffering in that you might not experience yourself. And, and the more diverse of people there are, the more opportunity you have in Christ, to grow in Christ-likeness. Because again, it's just too easy to move on when it's on the news, but when suffering impacts someone in your family, you have to stop. Even if it feels like it's slowing the church down. And that might reveal some of our cultural idols of productivity and success, especially in this weird world that we call a church planting, where like growth, that's gotta be number one at expense of anything else. But maybe the mission of reconciliation will say, yo, you need to slow down a little bit. You can't just give a seminar on these things. You need to sit and listen and cry and mourn. And you just can't find a solution, really. This is not going to be a position paper thing. It's got to be flesh pressed to flesh together and cry together if it's your own nephew, if it's your uncle. And it will slow things down. And I also believe those moments when we experience our mutual suffering it's a critical moment for the church to become united, unified, or divided. And I think we've seen evidence of that just in the larger landscape. Um, I, this is a moment of transparency, I'll just be really honest. I, I don't like when people say, I gotta be really honest because it assumes everything else they've been saying is like false, but <laughs> for real, real honest here. Um, you know, over the past couple of years, and probably it was just the rest of life just feeling so crummy, but one of the things that really hit hard was uh, just a rising documentation of uh, racism against Asians in this nation for a lot of different reasons, including violent acts. And that, that hurts in and of itself, and especially being a communal people. This is weird for, I think, Western context to get, like, well, it didn't happen to you or your family. Why does it... Because when you're part of these more... Uh, communal cultures, you feel it as if you could imagine it being your own family. And I remember just mourning, grieving, uh, imagining if my wife were out there and something happened to her, because it was mainly happening to Asian women, and kind of a fear. I know we're not supposed to fear, but it's just 
And I remember the pain of it, but I think what really compounded the pain was feeling like I'm sharing my heart about these things, but so many in my communities and even those who've always said we're family, it's like crickets. And, and I really want to give the benefit. It's not that people don't care. It's probably more, I'm not sure what to say. But it, you feel that. And, and honestly, I, a period of even for me asking, are you even meant to be part of this, families? Is that what family does? But I think the redemptive side of it, I also saw glimpses of real family. And this is not... I, I hope this isn't embarrassing, but Pastor Jamal, um, I, remember, I remember in the midst of a real dark time with all of that feeling like I just got to be out of all this. I remember him contacting me saying, hey, um, I've been seeing all this going on. I would love to talk more. Would, would you be open to doing a podcast about it? And I just remember feeling like that's his family. That's family. Uh, you might not fully get it yourself, but you're willing to say, can you help me to see what you're seeing? Because you're my family. And I'm going to help carry this burden along with you. <laughs> Suffering binds us in ways that many, not many other things do. And I think it's true for all ministry, but especially in reconciling churches, suffering becomes less just a problem to remedy, but it's a way to demonstrate what it means to be family. And it's a mutual relationship. I think about the beautiful description in 1 Corinthians that talks about the body of Christ. And I mean, we can all confess, if you're a pastor in this room, we've all done it. We usually think about the application for the local church because we need to fill ministry team positions. And you all have a different spot, even though some of you, the elbow, you could be part of this law. And yeah, no, we, we think about all that. And, and I think that's appropriate. But guys, it's not just about how to be more productive in building like holistic ministry. We can't miss this far more radical message that we are redeemed in order to be one. The implication being, you will not get the wider glimpse of God without all the people of God being represented. Because God is too big to be known through just one cultural lens. And I, I know maybe even some of us in here, we get nervous when we start to hear things like, are you suggesting that Jesus Christ is not enough, son? Like, uh, solar, I, I believe in all the solas. I, I, um, but I also believe in my fallibility. I believe in my limits. I believe that I cannot in my own with who I am and my experiences, my education, dare to arrogantly say, I know everything about everything. I need other people to give me a more well-orbed glimpse of the world if I'm gonna be a better leader. So for me, uh, it, it just, for me, I need to regularly listen to women because I'm not a woman and I don't see things that women do. I need to regularly talk to people who are older than me. I also need to talk to people younger than me because that really confuses me. I, I, need to, I need them to help me. I need to talk to families who are walking in disability ministry because that's not something I'm gonna think about normally. I need people to keep my eyes on that. Um, I, I need to talk and, and, and listen and learn from obviously people of different ethnic backgrounds because it's just not in order for me to be the best person, but also leader I can be. And if we need scriptural evidence, I, I love the story of Peter and Cornelius and the whole dream that, that you know, they all dreaming and communicating through dreams. That's wonderful, epic, how this Holy Spirit works, right? It's great. But Peter, I just, I marvel at just this, um, Humility that he had to realize, you know, this is a dude who walked with Jesus. He was one of the three. He had, I mean, you talk about seminary, that's the best seminary education ever. On the mountain with Jesus. You would think if there's anyone who never has a thing they're going to need to learn again, it's Peter. He, the dude gave a sermon where thousands are coming. To, he seems to know it. But he recognized that there are areas he still needed to grow. God revealed it to him in the form of this other man named Cornelius so that he could be as great of a leader as God intended him to be. And just here's my gentle, and I hope you hear it gently. We've trusted too much in our theology books for our growth and maturity, 
at the expense of walking with the diverse people of God is our growth and maturity. I'm not saying theology books are bad. Please don't just misquote me. I love theology books, but we are a head kind of climate here, right? We believe as long as we know the right things, read the right books, then we are solid. We have everything that we need to know in Christ. And I believe there's part that we can be fully confident who we are in Christ, but we need to walk that alongside what God wants to teach us through the beautiful mosaic of his creation. Because there are things he still wants to teach us no matter how long we've been doing this thing. And one of the primary ways that you and others grow in maturity is from entering the stories of the different ways we suffer. In our church, uh, we have a good number of Asian Americans. And one of the really, I mean, I think, and, and Asians, again, are not a monolith. They're, it's wide. And but in our church, at least, a lot of the Asian Americans tend to be very highly educated, uh, tend to come from fairly upwardly mobile contexts. Like, and one of the best things for them in being in our church is walking flesh to flesh with some people who are suffering in poverty, suffering through addictions, suffering through uh, what it means to go to the methadone clinic. Because they've never seen that part and God is doing a work informing who they are to recognize they need, you need to understand that your sheltered view, like whenever we do prayer requests, it can't just be, I have a test tomorrow, so God help me. It, it's, it's crazy how sometimes small groups, it's like you go around, if I, yeah, I've got a big exam coming. I'm like, okay, like, we can pray for that. I mean, there's other stuff going on. We can pray for that too. But it goes both ways. Because I've heard from some members of our community, like especially from our neighborhood, who said, I've always thought that those really smart people who have those great jobs, they must never have any problems. But when they've shared how they're struggling in their relationships, they're struggling in their mental health, even though I thought they have everything, man, that's been really good for me to know. It's a mutual growth in understanding, especially in areas where we might suffer. Because suffering binds us in the common threads of our shared humanity. I saw this at work, probably one of the greatest um, personal chances for me to be part in Ministries of Reconciliation. Um, for a while, I was in West Philadelphia doing ministry. And uh, one summer, I had the chance to do ministry called Lighthouse, where we did basically, I was, I was biased, but it was like one of the best summer camps in the city. And it was in the neighborhood. And it was just a really interesting, weird looking thing. We would get a lot of glimpses when we're going around because it was predominantly Asian American counselors and leaders. And almost all of the kids from kindergarten up to eighth grade, uh, either almost everyone, either African American or African. So it was just an interesting sight getting off all these buses at the pool, like people doing double, like what's going on here? A lot of smiles as well though. But I think, you know, as, as beautiful as the glimpse of reconciliation it might have showed, um, you needed to know the roots of that story. And where that came from was probably about a decade earlier in the winter of 1993 uh, at, that, at that church in West Philadelphia. There was a deacon in the Korean-speaking congregation who was in the parking lot, um, and his wife was upstairs in the choir doing a rehearsal and putting, um, I think, five-and-a-half-month-old baby into the car, trying to keep it settled, and two youths from the neighborhood came. And apparently, and the details are, are not fully, no one really knows, but apparently there was some kind of altercation, and he ended up getting shot by those two youths. And it was, it's actually the first reported carjacking in the city of Philadelphia, and he was murdered in that parking lot. They drove away with the car with the baby in. Uh, thankfully, they dropped the baby off a few blocks away somewhere, and they were um, eventually uh, arrested. And again, I wasn't at the church this time, but I hear the stories. I heard the stories. That, that church, they really had to do some soul searching because there was a lot of clamor from within. Hey, is this a sign from God that we are not in the place we need to be? Because this is kind of a dangerous neighborhood. What's this going to do to people wanting to come to the church? This is not going to help in those things. And I believe this has to be the spirit of God moving. Uh, an African-American pastor from the community came into the church, came to the leadership and just said, we are grieving in this neighborhood over this. We are so, so heartbroken for you. And we want you to know this is not how everyone here feels about you. 
And I also believe this was spirit-led. The church leadership, they did some soul searching as well. And they realized we have been in this church for decades and people in this community didn't even know that we were a church. They thought that we were a fancy club for Asians who bring in their nice cars a couple times a week and just kind of do their thing. They never even knew we're a church. We need to do better. And what happened from there, some of the English-speaking congregations said, say, God is opening some doors here if we're listening. And they started, and, and it started um, as something called parking lot outreach, that in that very parking lot where a murder had occurred, it became this block party, inviting in the whole community. And from there, tutoring programs started, mentoring programs, eventually even these summer camps and just beautiful expressions of reconciliation and unity. And this was in light of just, this was in the period of LA riots, where there was still a lot of tension between uh, black and Asian communities, Korean communities. In the midst of that, what a display of the reconciling power of Christ at work. And, and the story's great, but I always have to make sure people understand, you know that someone lost their husband. A baby was orphaned. There was loss of life for this beautiful expression of God's reconciliation to occur. And, and we, we glory in that, but we, we can't minimize the pain that's involved. Because unity through diversity is beautiful and it's worth pursuing, but it also requires death. And God willing, it's never as extreme as like a literal physical death, but it requires death on every person's part to say no to themselves, to say no to things that they've always thought were really important if we believe that we want to be part of a community of reconciliation. Because honestly, death is why I think some have just given up on it because it's just not cool to do anymore. It makes ministry hard. It's just much easier to like, there's why there's things like homogenous unit principle, because it works. Just focus on who you know. Focus on who you are. Just develop programs that'll appeal to just don't try to reach everyone. But guys, we have a different mandate. Even if it's hard, even if it feels like it's slowing things down, even if it means like some people are gonna get mad because their church is not meeting what they want. We're called to be people who model Christ's reconciliation even at the feeling of sacrifice. But I want to leave you with something to imagine. The unity and diversity of reconciliation may be the church's way to reclaim our prophetic witness to our world. I don't think it's anyone in this room, but we've lost it. The world doesn't look to the church with. They think we're a bunch of crazy people. Can't even get along with one another. But in a divided climate that can even be tied to those who profess Christ, the ministry of reconciliation may be the way God saves us from ourselves. That we don't bow down to power and privilege and platform and resources. Again, all those things can be helpful, but we say, what does it mean to say no to myself for the sake of another? That can't help us point us to the Christ. That was his whole mission. So I want to invite you in this moment. I want to pray for you if I can. And I don't think it has to be everyone, but for some of you, um, if you're a white brother, I hope you don't come out of this with like guilt. I think, I think one of the unhelpful things is just this guilting and shaming of like white folk that I'm not saying your life is harder than people of color, but it's, it's gotten complicated. And maybe it's easier just say, I'm just not going to try it. It's not worth it. But could I invite you to the exile's journey to say, I'm willing to follow Christ in the dark places where I might not find many people who are finding the same path as I am, but I feel it's worth it. If that's you, I want to pray for you. But I also want to give a word out to the people of color in the room. And again, I, I, I feel almost embarrassed saying that as one monolith because we are all different. I don't want you to ever feel like you're just lumped in. But if that's you, it's a hard time right now. It can be hard in largely, predominantly, if you're the minority in a group to feel like, do people really get me? Am I really family? And I want to invite you, it's also the journey of the exile, to say, I'm going to step into places that feel a little hard at times, but for the sake 
of a greater mission that I can't accomplish alone. And the thing about exiles, I think there's a lot to learn from the immigrant church. One of the best things to learn from the immigrant church is what it means to be an exile. Because you realize you make yourself at home, but you're never fully at home. And I think we've gotten a little too comfortable making this our home. And maybe the Lord is trying to save us from ourselves, invite us into the exile's journey. The beautiful thing is when you look around and you have others who are walking that path with you. And you realize you're not alone. So again, no guilt or shame or fear in any of this, but if, if, I, if you feel like you want to take that step to commit to the Lord in that exile's journey, can I just ask you to stand with me and I want to pray with you if you would like to do that right now, if you feel like you want to trust Christ in moving forward to say, I commit to being an exile, that the ministry of reconciliation will go forward. 